Welcome to the American Cinema Foundation Movie Podcast. I'm your host, Titus, and today I'm joined again by Mr. Jody Bottom for a conversation on Kurosawa. We talked on Twitter, as we sometimes do, and we both found out to our mutual surprise that we love The Hidden Fortress and would love to share a conversation about it with our audience. We are now in the second installment of a Kurosawa series. We have already covered Rashomon, and of course later we will get to Seven Samurai. But for today, we decided to choose Hidden Fortress, a 1958 movie that's, as Mr. Bottom says, nearly perfect. It's at the same time a light comedy and a very serious story about Japan's history. It is not based on historical facts, but it is full of historical elements. It is a wonderful combination, therefore, of history and fiction, a story about history, and it has proved to be a lasting movie and wonderfully pleasant and usually not perhaps optimistic but confident and hopeful which is not true of most of Kurosawa's historical pictures of course and so I was delighted to watch it again and to look forward to this recording and to learn that you like it as well sir but first of all please tell me how did you run into Hidden Fortress and where do you see it in Kurosawa's work? Well, see, Titus, I'm old enough to remember Blockbuster. I'm old (laughs) enough to remember the days of the video store. And I just finished my PhD and I was teaching at a little Catholic liberal arts college called Loyola in Baltimore. And there was a non-chain video store near my house. And my wife and I would go on binges and watch every Hitchcock film and every Orson Welles (laughs) film and every Kurosawa film. And they were dreadful prints, probably unpirated, put out by people who did not actually own the copyright. But they were enough to go on with and form a full impression of Kurosawa. And I think we saw everything but a couple of the early films at that time in a very brief period. We were watching a film or two a night. There's something lovely about that. Even film critics, much less the casual film viewer, could not do before the videotape revolution and now, of course, the subsequent online experience, which is films begin to cohere. You begin to get a much better sense of the auteur of a director when you can watch a whole bunch of films of his in a brief period all in a row. You used to have to live in Greenwich Village and go to a film festival to be able to do that. And now everybody lives in the village. Everybody's at a permanent film festival. Television, I have noticed, Titus, has changed in very interesting ways thanks to the ability to binge watch. So that showrunners of television programs will insist on unifying details like the pineapple in Psych that appears in every episode that would have flown right over the heads and been meaningless and worthless in 1965 now become mandatory. Our experiences changed in watching films, and I was one of the first people, or one of many people at the time, but in that first moment to take advantage of the change and actually form a sense of Kurosawa from watching all these films the first time, you know, in a brief period that lets you get a sense of him in the same way that you would if you read all of Dickens in a row, or if you read all of, or you can't read all of Trollope in a row, there's just too much of it, but a lot of Trollope in a row. If you read an author, a lot of him, 
Lionel Trilling once called it reading by the yard. <laughs> and if you read a yardstick's worth of text by an author all at once, all in a row, you get a sense of him. And the same with Kurosawa. And Titus, I believe that although it is much dismissed, the Hidden Fortress actually bobs toward the top of Kurosawa's work if you watch a bunch in a row and realize what he's doing. I think you're right. I think that we do live in this wonderful moment, which is what inspired my series of podcasts itself. The ability of people to watch the movies and to listen to talk about them creates this new opportunity for movie lovers to learn about the things that they love and to rediscover them. And I also thought that this is one important thing to treat directors as you would viewing an exhibition at a museum. All of a sudden you can see many, many canvases by the same artist artist and begin to become familiar with him and put two together in ways that are simply unavailable if you have to do it simply sequentially, staccato as it were, one here, one there, especially with movies that come out perhaps many years apart. And so this is why we're doing a Kurosawa series now. We hope to accumulate enough such conversations so that people do get a sense from the sweep and from the sequence of what Kurosawa was about, what his range was, what his interests were some of his typical moves and also some of the strange things that separate movies and in that way to become not only lovers of Kurosawa but also to learn from him and to gain the an appreciation for his art for how he did things and why it's wonderful to be able to do this and to think of future conversations with more Kurosawa later at the same time of course to start our audience off I'll give a very brief overview of the plot the hidden fortress actually titled in Japanese The Three Scoundrels of the Hidden Fortress. These three characters start out as two peasants who have run off from their village to join a war between two clans in the hope of achieving riches by conquest. The life of peace has not worked out for them, they're miserable and poor, and so they hope that war will make them rich. Indeed, if peace itself is hell, why not go for war, which is also hell, but at least it has this prospect of reward. The third of the three scoundrels must be the towering presence of Toshiro Mifune, who turns out to be a general but a defeated one, and to dress like one of the scoundrels. And so really, what is the difference? We find out gradually that he is different because he's on a mission not simply to get gold, although he too, like the poor peasants, is interested in gold. He's on a mission to save the princess of his clan, the last nobleman of his clan, and take her to a safe place where she can reconstruct the clan, where there can be a future for this beautiful and good version of Japan that is not reducible to the slaughter and the misery and the greed that we see with the victorious clan. The first act of the movie is concerned with these two peasants who are by turns miserable and comic and are wonderful to watch. Then they're meeting with Toshiro Mifune and they're setting on their mission. The second act of the movie is a long going through their adventure. All of a sudden this becomes a picaresque. You see them going around Japan and you wonder how are they going to get this hidden treasure that is necessary for the future of the clan but is at this point endangering their very lives since their conquerors are on their trail precisely to secure this treasure of 200 bars of gold. Then we get of course to the wonderful, in a way too good to believe, conclusion of the story. So let's start with this unusual introduction. We have two miserable characters who are complaining to each other 
They're walking in a kind of desert, quarreling <clears throat> that nothing's worked out for them whatsoever. You know, the common thing to say here, in fact, so common that I almost don't want to say it, is that Lucas took the opening of Star Wars from the opening of this movie. I think the point has become kind of hackneyed and almost doesn't bear mentioning, except Titus, that we have to mention it. All right. Having gotten that out of the way, (laughs) there's something extraordinary there. They're squabbling, and they're so incompetent, Titus, that they've reached the war late. (laughs) It's not even clear which side they would have joined. The movie has them mention at one point about midway through that they had come to join one side when earlier in the movie they had said they'd come to join the other side. There's actually a stumble in the script there, but not a stumble in the larger sense. It's a picture of them as incompetent and foolish and tiny. They're actually tiny men that Kurosawa has cast here as these two peasants. They even have slightly peculiar names, even for Japanese. They're miserable all the time. They are comic, and yet, Titus, maybe they're not as comic as we think they are. After all, encountering the princess for the very first time in Act One, whom they don't know is a princess, their first response is to rape her. You know, they attempt to do so. She, interestingly, holds her own against them, armed with nothing but a riding crop, which is just more sign of how incompetent they are and what miserable soldiers they would have made. But still, they are as much a piece of the violent evil chaos of Japan as the Lord who puts the scars on the face of his best general and causes a major turn in the plot later on. Japan at this point is a disaster of chaos in which evil appears to be winning. Evil has spread all through the culture to the point at which these comic, lovable R2-D2 characters Unlike in Star Wars, which I believe is a less deep reading of this kind of situation, more enjoyable, of course, in some ways, but less deep, it's spread to the point at which these comic, lovable buffoons see a girl and their first response is to try to rape her. Yes, you make a very good point here that we laugh at these people because they look pathetic. They make fun of each other, they try to fight each other, they're bad even at that, they're dressed in rags, they're dirty. And of course, throughout most of the movie, Toshiro Mifune is there to hold them in check. And yet they might do dangerous things. There are various points where they might or they even try to destroy the mission, somewhat unwittingly, sometimes on purpose, treacherously. And indeed, they're as much part of the predicament of Japan as everybody else. At first, they seem exceptional. They seem to be the hippies who, when they gave a war, came too late. But why were they driven to war? Because the country's in misery. The wars between the warlords have gotten to the point where they're starving the population, where they're driving madness everywhere. So, in a way, this starts out as a comedy. If you find two characters at the beginning of a story complaining about things, it's a very good sign that's going to be a comedy. But behind the comedy is this horror unfolding throughout Japan, enfolding everyone. It's not clear that any dignity will escape. It might be that we're all laughable. Why? Because we thought so highly of ourselves, so to speak, that we could have peace and justice when in fact we have only chaos, war, and everybody's destroyed. And that would be 
too much that would be terrible and as you put it these sort of natural men who have no exalted aspirations or pretensions could also come to be so low as to not just be riches but to turn into beasts to turn to rape to turn to rapine Think of a parallel here, Titus. The great comic character in Dickens' David Copperfield is Macabre. Mm -hmm. He's larger than life, comic, fumbling. He's this sort of character except, you know, turned in a different direction. Misuses language all the time. He gets grand plans. He's the great comic character. And he treats this starving little boy as though he were an adult, an adult listener to the internal comedy of his, you know, fantasy life, never recognizing that it's just a little boy who needs a father, who needs protection, nurturing and education. Now, that's not at all what's going on here. But I want you to think of a way in which an artist can take and use even a comic character to display the extent of the cultural corruption. And if we're putting Kurosawa in the company of Dickens, we're putting him in very high company indeed. Yes, you're right. It's hard to think of a comic, laughable, silly, ugly situation as having high dignity, speaking, that is to say, to the fundamental things that make us human. But in a way, the comic sequence itself does. These two men wanted to be part of a war and get some glory and money out of it, but they came too late, and what did they get? They were forced for days to pile up the corpses. That's not funny anymore. There is this dangerous thing hiding behind the funny stuff we see. There is much terrifying stuff, but it's mostly told, and it's told in bickering, which is an unserious way of speaking. There is not so much terrifying stuff shown, and that's part of the comic art Kurosawa employs to conceal what's happening here. And indeed, it's because we need to take it in a comic way, to see it without fear, and to become able to confront something that is very, very serious. It takes a getting us there. These two laughable, contemptible even characters serve to draw us in. In a certain way, they are an audience substitute, because we, like them, are too late for the war. And we, like them, are creatures of peace. We don't know what this is. But we, like them, have to deal with the consequences of the war. This movie, of course, was made in 58, and it was at a safe distance from World War II, but not from the horrifying consequences of World War II for Japan. It was not easily forgotten, and in certain ways hasn't been forgotten yet, of course. And so we need to learn about war, but to learn without terror. We have to learn after the fact. We have to learn in an indirect, comical way. And that's what seems to be what drives these characters. Their very silliness allows... Kurosawa to start making a point that continuously enlarges. These people wanted gold. Then it turns out that the conquerors in this war between clans, they also wanted gold. And then it turns out that the ones who were conquered, the few survivors who are trying to run away, they want to hold on to their gold. Everybody is after gold in this world, and that would seem to abolish the distinction between the noble and the base, between winners and losers, between everyone and everyone else. And because they are abolished, they reveal something very dangerous, that we're all the same in all loving gold, and that that love itself leads us to war. That which we love is that which causes our own destruction. That would seem to be, hiding behind comedy, the tragic truth. What we love will not lead us to happiness. If we pursue it, it will lead us to destruction. And it almost does lead these two men to destruction. 
not only have their purposes all been defeated, they were too late for the battle. They were too late to side with the winners. The winners forced them, thinking that they were part of the army of the losers, to pile up corpses, and they're now trying to run away in a situation where, as is typical in Japan after a big battle, for days and weeks and months, the losers are hunted down and exterminated, presumably to prevent a repeat of the battle in such a warlike people, in such a warlike age. And they're miserable, they're starving for days when the story starts, and instead of working together, they fight each other. But they're bad at that too, since they're so contemptible. That again lightens the mood, but they're hunted down without quite realizing it's they're captured, they're forced again to dig for gold, and here you see a kind of irony. That's what they were looking for in the first place. But now they will be forced to look for gold, not for their own gain, but for the gain of their masters. War is a master for everybody, we're all fighting for gold, but these people also have a master that's trying to destroy them, because they don't matter, the gold that they're supposed to find matters. But by a series of accidents, they're not just led into trouble, they're led out of trouble, they're led from the city back into nature, into the wilderness, and there they happen upon gold. The power of gold is so great over their souls that these two men who have been harassed so badly by events and by their own stupidity and cupidity, when they finally get some food, which of course they have to steal, because the poor have to steal from those who have more, or the people who feel poor because they're greedy, they have to steal, like the conquerors. That's the world shown in Hidden Fortress. However, comically, when we see these two losers run away with a bag of rice and a pot to boil it in. Well, they make their food, but they're too greedy for gold to actually eat it. They do not eat. Apparently, gold gives you powers, even if you don't have it, or especially when you don't have it. They get this supernatural endurance simply out of their crazy love of gold. <laughs> <laughs> and that's what prepares them to meet Toshiro Mifune. Had they just eaten their food and never discovered the gold, they would have been free of all the drama and we would not have had the story. It is the power gold has over their souls that leads them to encounter this larger-than-life beast of a man. I think these are all very nice observations, Titus. I mentioned that I thought this is a deeper story than Star Wars for all that Star Wars is one of the most enjoyable movies ever made. And we're allowed to think about that because, of course, Lucas borrowed from The Hidden Fortress to make Star Wars. The opening scenes of the squabbling robots, as opposed to the squabbling Tahi and Marashishi, are fraught with exactly the themes that you brought up. They've been burying corpses. War has corrupted them all the way down. You know, they're not evil. They're just lightweight. And in an evil world, they become evil. And gold is part of the corruption of that world. It's not the cause, but the hunger for gold is the cause of this, one of the causes of the corruption of this world. At the same time, though, I disagree with you, Titus, when you say that gold eliminates the distinctions between winners and losers, because in fact, the general, Rokurota, and the princess, Yuki, are noble characters. They've not been corrupted. Now, that doesn't make them good, although the general is good. Yuki has to learn. And one of the things that's going on is a kind of buildings on in which through the course of this picaresque travel, Yuki becomes the person she ought to be as a princess instead of just a haughty, royal, noble person. But here's what's missing in Star Wars to be deeper in the way the Hidden Fortress is, is that undercurrent of evil in those opening comic scenes. 
that moment where they meet the princess and they're going to rape her, I want to take that seriously for a second. Because it seems to me that Star Wars is also less deep precisely in the question of what the princess is, what she operates as in this world of evil. Let me put it this way, which is very strong, but I think can be defended and certainly may open up our conversation a little bit, Titus. What is the hidden fortress? Of course, it's the secret defensible place in the rocks where they have set a rendezvous point before they start out on their picaresque travels. But in another sense, Titus, the hidden fortress is the intact virginity of the Princess Yuki. Her ability to restore the clan because she is capable of noble marriage. There's something important about the attempted rape, which is very brief and you know not a very competent attempted rape at that. But there's something very interesting there because that's actually the threat that Princess Yuki will be despoiled and the clan will never be restored. The hidden fortress of the clan is the Princess Yuki. She needs money for that, so they've got to keep the gold. You're absolutely right. But if we think seriously about the metaphor, what George Lucas never gives us in Star Wars, but is present here in the hidden fortress, is a clear sense of the biology of it all of how it is that a clan manages to hand itself on to the next generation, how it survives catastrophe, and how the good can stand against this general miasma of evil that's descended on Japan. Yes, I think you're very much right. It's precisely because Kurosawa takes seriously the problem of wickedness, of evil, of chaos, all of this turning war into a catastrophe that might engulf everybody and reduce everything to savagery, that he needs also to offer some real hope for the future, which turns out to mean not a noble general, but indeed this noble woman who can restore a clan through birth. And therefore, indeed, the possibility of rape would actually abolish the distinction between noble and base, which isn't the same as being a poor or a rich person. It has to do with justice, which is what the movie is supposed to preserve as a possibility and to show as an example and therefore as an education. The proper way, I think, to understand Hidden Fortress is exactly as you said. This woman needs an education in the royal art, how to really dedicate herself to justice and therefore how really to be noble. In a way, she's uniquely suited for the challenge because her father, who wanted an heir he never had, before he was defeated, brought her up as a tomboy. She is ready for a rough life as the war has brought her a rough life, but that is not sufficient. It is also requisite that she learn how to deal with human beings, how to deal with friends and enemies, how to deal with those who are naturally noble and those who are naturally base, and how to arrange human beings who are different, of different stature, of different hierarchy, with different possibilities and purposes, how to deal with them all. And indeed, that means, first of all, you have to beat the decadent peasants. But it turns out eventually to mean that you have to awe them and reward them as well. These two men, Tahe and Matashchi, they are with us from beginning to end. At some point, they are no longer necessary to the plot, but they are still there because they do represent the common people who could be debased by corrupt leaders, but could also be ennobled. Exactly. This is what I said when I said they were lightweight. 
their detritus floating on the flood. And if the water here were pure, they would be better people. But the water is murky and filled with evil, and so that's the direction they will flow. Now, there are noble peasants. You remember the girl who turns out to be a relation of the generals who gave her life pretending to be the princess. We discover this, and it's a shocking moment. And in fact, the Princess Yuki's great line, often quoted as her great line, is when she says, Kofuyu was 16, I am 16. What is the difference there in our souls? And so this dead girl who gave her life to save the princess... The princess finally, in the course of their travels, comes to realize that in terms of the soul, she is no more valuable than any other. Now, that could be a way of pulling her down. But in fact, what it promises is that revelation is a way of pulling everyone else up. Politically, that's what the leader has to realize. There is no essential difference in soul that justifies the sacrifice made by noble people to preserve the hidden fortress of her virginity. But there is a political purpose, and these people are noble for making the sacrifice. And it's her job as the princess to realize the depth of humanity and what's going on there and how it is that the family can live on, the clan can live on, and the good nobles of Japan can begin to restore a world in which the flood of chaotic evil is gradually pushed back from Japan. Yes. As you put it, Princess Yuki starts from an apolitical position. She's a tomboy up in the mountains. She has a natural nobility about her. She can defend herself for one thing and is defiant and is strong. For another thing, she loves horses, always a sign of nobility. And for a third, indeed, she does not wish that people die for her and she does not take it for granted that her life is more important than other lives. If we abstract from politics, what is the difference between two 16-year-old girls? Aren't they both human beings and very, very similar? But it turns out that politics makes a difference because from the apolitical position, you cannot explain what a clan is, what a political community is, and therefore there is no justice. Either everybody will behave nobly like the princess does and her general, or everybody might behave in a base way as these peasants try to do. To make that difference, you have to install justice. To install justice, you will need a political community with a regime and with rulers. But those rulers need an education. And this she is what the movie gets offers. it. I mean, there's an extraordinary moment where this farm girl they've picked up at the moment of their capture throws herself on the ground and says, I'm the princess. I'm the princess. And everybody just stops and stares at her for a minute because it's so implausible. No one is deceived by this. But there's something incredibly noble about her doing that, trying, pretending there. And that's part of the princess's education. And the princess needs to be educated in humanity. She also, Titus, needs to be educated in God. There's a religious education that she receives. The most explicit moment of religion in any of Kurosawa's major films comes in this film. This film is often dismissed. In the lists of Kurosawa's great film, you get Rashomon, you get The Seven Samurai, you get Ron, you get even Throne of Blood sometimes. But these lists of his great movies, The Hidden Fortress rarely makes that list. It's often dismissed. 
And the Princess Yuki and the very young actress who was playing her at the time in the 1950s had a very short career in Japanese cinema. They often go unmentioned. There's a whole book called Kurosawa's Women, you know, a whole study of female characters in Kurosawa, which never deals with the Princess Yuki. Just doesn't bother (laughs) because it's such a minor film, right? I think, in fact, there are several deep things going on here. We've talked about some of them. The transition that this princess has to make, whose only experience in the world is being a tomboy and being a snooty noble. They actually have her pretend to be a mute in order that her imperious accent doesn't reveal that she comes from a noble class. Even linguistically, she's separated from the people. And we've explored that, but we haven't talked about the fire scene where they get caught up in a religious festival. And I believe this moment is the most explicitly religious moment in Kurosawa's major films. Yes, I believe you're right. And I think we can explain very briefly why it would be in a comic movie that the highest theme, God, is treated. Now, the princess is said to belong to a clan called Akizuki, and her conquerors, whose fire festival is mentioned, it's not the one of the conquered, but one of the conquerors, they are called Yamana. Now, these are real clans. They never fought because they're on different islands. So one is on Honshu and near Mount Fuji, where this is supposed to have taken place, the fire festival, but the princess's clan is from Kyushu, the smaller island a bit to the south. This is Kurosawa's way of saying you have to bring them together. But further, in the movie, the thrust is to go to this third clan. They are drawn on maps. We are told where this is. That's supposed to be on the border of both of these things that do not have a border since there's a sea between them. And that third clan, Hayakawa, doesn't exist. That is created only in comedy. That represents the future of Japan. It is comedy or fiction in this sense that allows for a happy end that allows for the thematization of a future for Japan, and therefore allows some reprieve from tragedy, from the suffering of war. These entire centuries of Japanese history, the Middle Ages, are called the age of the country at war, because that's what happened. Noble clans kept fighting and took centuries to unify the country and put an end to the wars, like had happened more than 1500 years before in China. The path to this possible future, this fictional invented clan where there might be peace, goes from the land of the conquered to the land of the conquerors and to their religious festival. To get to the promised land, you have to go by God. And it's a long path through a treacherous, dangerous land. Well, all human unity ultimately lies through God. Kurosawa, I think, sees that in exactly the way you're describing, which hadn't fully occurred to me until you put that, Titus, and I think that's really well observed. But let's also think about what actually happens. A typical picaresque adventure moment. You have these fleeing people. They've hidden gold in these sticks that they've tied on their backs as though they were collectors of firewood. They're walking along and they're gradually surrounded by people carrying piles of sticks. They think this is going to help disguise them. They're being swept along with everyone else, and it does, you know, hide them, but they're being swept along toward a giant bonfire. People are dancing around this huge bonfire, throwing these piles of sticks onto the fire, and it's comic. 
these people are trying to get away and the crowd keeps kind of drafting them in and yelling at them to throw their sticks on the fire. And when they don't, they're starting to get notice and they can't afford to have notice. So in the end, they have to throw their sticks in which their gold is hidden into the fire and then hope that after the fire festival is all over, they can sneak in and dig the gold back up from the ashes, which of course they do. But this is a comic scene in a picaresque. You would see it in other settings in Don Quixote. You'd see it in the Pickwick Papers, caught up in a crowd and forced to behave like the crowd. Except the Princess Yuki is dancing with the crowd as she has to. And I think she does a pretty good job as a very young actress. I mean, Toshiro Mifune is just dominating this film in a very interesting way that we should talk about Titus. But she's, you know, a minor actress. I think she does a wonderful job or expressing her gradual capture by the religious fervor of the moment. They're singing a song about death as they dance around the fire. You know, life is going to come after this solution that you've talked about that's going to arise out of Japan. But this is a song about death, about how brief life is how we are just sparks and flames that snap up into the air for a moment and then are gone. And she is pretending to dance along with the people, and she gradually ceases to pretend. Now, part of that is her joining the people, but part of that is her religious conversion, realizing that there is a divine, this mystical purpose to life. And the song comes back, Titus, at a key moment at the end, for it's when she is singing this song again, all by herself, tied to a post, certain to be executed, that she converts the general who's captured them. And that is, you know, ringing that bell one more time, really explicitly, so that you and I get it. Indeed, she has to remember the experience, like she has to remember the melody, and she has to have paid attention to what was said in order to repeat the words of that song and to show that she has understood them. And by realizing when they should be uttered, she shows that she has understood them. Only then is her education complete. In the religious ritual, they just have to sacrifice the gold, or at least risk it. But later, she has to be willing to sacrifice her life. That seems to be a requirement for rulers, in a way it is not for those they rule. And that would seem to be the mark of the noble, that willingness to sacrifice. As you put it, the scene starts out very comically because these people think it's a very bright idea to hide among the wood gatherers, but they don't know what the wood is for. Since you don't know the purpose, you don't really know if it's a good thing, but you hope. And then they get to the bonfire, and it turns out that they can't escape. There's an army looking out for them. It's like Charlie Chaplin and a copper looking out for him. You've got to pretend, you've got to play along. There you see the peasants would rather try to run away because they're too greedy for the gold. It's the noble general, Toshiro Mifune, who decides that actually this is we have to do it and it might work out because we can hide our wood among the wood. Gold doesn't burn in a wood fire, so it'll be perfectly fine. He's willing to take the risk. The peasants have lost hope. He has not lost hope because he knows, he thinks about this distinction between wood and gold. And this means that they have to join the festival, the dancing and the singing, as you say. So their narrow purpose, protecting this gold, and their larger purpose, getting to this other happy free land where they could have a future, and the character of the festival itself all match because they have to somehow justify hope, and to justify hope you have to deal with mortality. The song compares the life of the man with the life of the insect. 
you have to throw it in the fire, the song says. And that seems horrifying, but in a way it's liberating, actually. It means that you have to accept your mortality. All your purposes, however they could come to a good end, will also come eventually to this end, death. And you cannot act freely unless you understand that and square with it. And indeed, the music transports the princess who reveals her beauty by dancing well, but also we will learn later that she was paying attention to the words and remembered them, and at the crucial moment shows that she did understand them. That you have to be willing to risk your life to understand yourself from a cosmic perspective, how petty it is to be human, how short life is, how little you can do. Because if right. you do not Titus, assume the... that cosmic grandeur, you can never act with a real purpose. <laughs> you can only act pettily. The difference between us and insects, Titus, is that we can sing songs about how there's no difference between us and insects. Exactly. It's very well put. That Even... we can rise up to the level of the cosmic order. Exactly. And look back down and say, ah, we are the same as insects, we are the same as sparks, we are the same as the sticks thrown on the fire that burn up in a moment. But while you're at the cosmic level, you are at the level of the divine. You exactly. encounter there something beyond yourself. And that revelation not only sticks with her, and so, you know, at what she thinks is the moment of her death, she returns to it in song, which becomes very important because it's what finally reveals her noble nature and thus what distinguishes her from the lord of the conquerors who beat and scarred his best general for failing to capture the princess and her escort. You know, that reveals to this general that there is a difference between a good leader and a bad leader, between a noble leader and an ignoble one. What's the difference? That she has embraced her death, that she can live at the cosmic level, that she, at 16 years old, has reached down into the pulsing mass of humanity, that she understands her political power and her political purpose in keeping her womb as the way of the family's regeneration, and that she has seen on the cosmic level what it is to be a human being. She's noble and possibly good in a way that the conquering lord is not. And that's enough for the very sudden but very interesting conversion of the conquering general. Yes. In a way, this is made possible by the peasants. It is the peasants who think, and then the general says to Shuromifune, yeah, they're smart, it's a very smart idea. They have to not be in the conquered land, but to pass through the land of the conquerors, since they will not be expected there. But the way the peasants reasoned, since the conquerors conquered the princess's clan, all the land is their land now. It's only a matter of being where the army is not. It is the fact that the general and the princess still think in terms of our land and their land that it hadn't occurred to them to do this commonsensical thing. They have to accept that they lost. This is no longer their land. All of it is the enemy's land. And they have to abase themselves in this psychological way, just like you have to abase yourself in your property and your hope in throwing that wood in the fire. That is a fire festival. It's autumn turning into winter. Cold is coming. That wood will keep you alive or else you die. But you can't simply leave it at that, saying the necessity of the cold of the winter is your master. You have to have some kind of freedom. Throwing wood in the fire asserts that freedom, just like in song, 
abasing oneself as a mere insect, says that I, my mind at least, however perishable my body, my mind has the dignity of knowing the character of the universe, the cosmic situation in which we are so perishable. At least our minds are less perishable than our bodies and therefore can ground our dignity. This is what it means to undertake psychologically the effort of risking everything you have for the sake of saving. That's what is involved in war, in fighting for a cause. You have to risk your life in order to get whatever good thing you think that cause will get you. Therefore, you have to be able to live with danger, to be able to accept danger, and even in a way to seek it out, because you have to prepare. You have to not react with fear or panic. And so you need to claim for yourself some kind of freedom for necessity. Every peasant does that when he sacrifices some wood to the fire. That wood is the difference between life and death over the long, hard winter. But you have to be willing to sacrifice it to some extent to deal with the fear, the danger, the hardship. It is a teaching of nobility. And this ultimately grounds, as you put it, the distinction between noble defeat and ignoble success. For the princess to deserve to be a good ruler, she has to ground that difference. She has to not be simply a success worshipper. She has to not turn like the peasants into somebody who will do anything to survive. She has to be willing to say that there is a fate worse than death. And therefore both herself and her general dignify and save this opposing general who had conquered them, but who had been humiliated by his own ruler because he lost a duel. The ruler wanted to say that honor doesn't matter at all. You lose, you're mutilated by defeat. Defeat can never be noble. It is always mutilating and ugly. That's the lesson that the evil ruler wanted to teach. And that is the lesson by which he won his war. So there's something to it. But therefore, the princess and her general, Toshiro Mifune, have to answer to that by saying that defeat is sometimes nobler than success. Yeah, particularly if it ends up in some kind of success. Let's close off what you and I have been describing as the political arc of the story. She has to find a way to restore her clan, something that is understood better by her general than by the princess at the beginning of the movie. The first time we see her, she's dressed in shorts, she has a riding crop, and her hair is pulled up into a boyish look. The imperious princess who doesn't know anything about real life but that frame in Star Wars, the first time we see the princess, she's kneeling, recording a message, but she's dressed in nice clothing. She has those strange braided buns on the sides of her head. She looks like a princess. The first time we see the princess Yuki in The Hidden Fortress, she doesn't look like a princess. She looks out of place in anything. The last time we see her, Kurosawa puts it almost like a painting in his filming. She is dressed as the noblest of Japanese women in an elevated center position. She has the two greatest generals of the age flanking her and giving deference to her because they've made it through their settled in neutral territory that they were trying to escape to. And she has come to the realization of her adulthood the realization of her political purpose, the realization of her womanhood, and the realization of her humanity. And that elevates her, and she is presented as though Kurosawa were painting a picture. It's so beautifully framed. She's beautiful, powerful, everything a woman should be if she's going to be noble. 
And that political arc is she's saved her family, kept the hidden fortress of her virginity intact. She's now able to use her military and sexual power to restore the clan. And she's become the thing that that arc was hoping that she would become. And that closes the political arc of the movie beautifully. But of course, there are other arcs in the movie, too. And we've talked about some of them. Yeah, in her authority, she's dressed in this anachronistic way from the Heian age. Her eyebrows have been plucked, which were so striking before, and now she has a bit of black where her eyebrows should be the way ladies had hundreds of years before, and that gives this classical, timeless vision of Japanese aristocracy for women. As you put it, she has power by her side, and she finally can speak in her own name. One reason she had been forced to be mute is the tone of her voice, as you put it. Another one is that Japanese, unlike English, isn't just a matter of accent when you distinguish the rich from the poor vocabulary. It's the very way you speak. It's built into the way you form words, as is also the case with Korean. The way you address somebody in authority subtly inflects every word you use. The way you address an equal or an inferior will be different. She would have to continuously change every word she uses to go from her aristocratic habits to speaking like a normal person. Her general can do that. He can speak to the noble and he can speak to the vulgar as well in the different way words are formed. She cannot do that and therefore she must be quiet. It's also supposed to teach her how somebody in authority acts. She saves a poor girl simply because she's of her own people and doesn't want to see her sold into sexual slavery, which we are told is the fate of women in war when the country is defeated. Just the horror that was about to be visited on the princess herself. But she cannot help that girl directly. She has to order her general to do it. She has to learn to act indirectly through her powers, through these men who willingly serve her. She has to be willing to accept service, and she can only do that fully at the end. For a film director, Kurosawa was interestingly fascinated by language. There's something about the way that women speak and the nuances that Japanese allowed you to sketch by just using their accents. The pitch of their voices tells you something in Japanese in a way that it doesn't really in English. You can see this, for instance, in Sanjuro with the noble older woman whose sheer goofiness forces Toshiro Mifune to continue to support these incompetent kids in their struggles. This is another comic movie of his. But once again, there's something about the way women speak that's playing on that canvas. The innocence, the wisdom, it's all signaled by a noble accent, which is very breathy, very high-pitched, and presumably, although I don't have the Japanese to know for sure, unique in vocabulary as well. And the princess at the end of The Hidden Fortress speaks in that voice, which sounds in the way Kurosawa wants us to hear it, like the voice of antiquity, like the voice of time, like the voice of ancient truth. That's how authority should speak when it can combine its majesty with a concern for the good. The princess at the end out of her overflowing substance now can offer a reward finally to these two peasants whom we may not even be sure deserve it. But you see, Titus, we can be sure because the very last scene of the movie is the scene of one of them giving the gold Rio to the other one. 
you're right up till that point whenever they thought about money or had money or horses or anything they fought over them they could neither agree on each holding what he has having what he holds nor could they agree on an equal democratic comical split and now for the first time because it seems somebody has been generous to them they can be generous to each other because somebody has shown them trust now they can trust each other whereas they previously had betrayed the general and the princess at least a couple of times and right. that suggests that just like we see with noble sacrifice and service that people look up to a ruler and that brings out their best efforts exactly so that's where i was the going ruler Exactly. The ruler cannot live by the rule of equal for equal, simply rewarding just desserts. You have to reward people's desserts just like you have to punish people for their crimes. But you need to do more. You need to add generosity to justice. You need to add mercy. If you look at the peasants, they have always looked on authority figures with fear and a kind of sneakiness the flicker of their eyes to see if there's some way to get out of this. That's been their understanding of authority figures, that they're just people who are stronger and have more power. When they see the princess in this scene that Kurosawa has painted so carefully, this is the first time they look on authority not with fear but with awe. Yeah, that experience is necessary, just like the experience of loss, of sacrifice, of danger is necessary for the princess to understand what she owes to other people, what she has in common with them, how great the thing she is supposed to achieve really is, and how difficult and dangerous. So also this other experience is necessary for people to behave well. Somebody, in order for you and I to become generous, has to have once treated us that way. For us even to learn gratitude, somebody has to be generous to us. And so the story plays throughout with questions of when are we equal and when we are not. The title talks about three scoundrels, but we only see two on screen. Well, in a sense, ironically, Toshiro Mifune at least pretends to be one. He is in a way equal with them, looks like them, acts like them, in a way not. So also in the beginning, they refuse to obey him because he looks just like them, also dressed in rags and dirty. Why should equal obey equal? Then they obey because he beats them. Then they obey because he promises them gold. In this way, they become equal as being together in the same effort, thinking of the same rewards. But in another way, they're still unequal since they're constantly lying to each other and not trusting each other. The equality at the end is in a sense that everybody now does partake in the common good, not profiting at each other's expense, either the rich exploiting the poor or the poor learning from the rich, trying to exploit them in return. It is no longer based on fear and envy, on resentment and on the desire to betray or exploit. That is a kind of equality. And as you put it before, it is an ennobling kind. It raises people up when they could otherwise be debased. Yeah, I think that's right. Now, you know, the political arc is interesting. I like the religious arc, which is exemplified in the fire scene when she loses all self-consciousness. I think it's a fine piece of acting on her part. She loses all self-consciousness and simply gets caught up in the emotional sway of the people. But there's also Toshiro Mifune and his acting job in this movie. It's only been four years since Seven Samurai, in which he played the peasant pretending to be a samurai, the goofy young character who has to be educated in how to be a samurai. And now he's playing a man in middle age. In essence, he's playing the leader's part from Seven Samurai. 
And it's only been four years. And his acting skill, I think, is wonderfully displayed that still a young man, he can project the authority the older man has, the physical authority, the mental acuity and authority, and he can project this on the screen. You know, when we get to say high and low, which is 1963, I think, so it's a few years later, his body has started to thicken up. He's got the bigger bones in the chest that older men have at the peak of their middle age, their full adultness. We saw this with John Wayne. Not as handsome a character, not as sexy a character or an actor as he matured, but he became a more manly character because he managed to project this man's thick presence in the world. By the time we get to High and Low, it's apparent that Mafuni has watched John Wayne to pieces. Just like Kurosawa watched John Ford's westerns to pieces until he got them, I think Mifune has watched John Wayne's maturation into a man in the prime of life instead of a young man. By the time we reach high and low, that's John Wayne walking across the stage. It's just extraordinary. But in The Hidden Fortress, I think we see an even greater display of acting ability. Because Mifune is playing an older character, and he captures what it is that older characters who've had positions of enormous authority are like. They have a kind of wisdom that extends beyond other people's. They have an impatience because they're competent. They're used to getting things done. They become impatient at the inability of others to be as they are. Grown men who've held positions of authority, Titus, are like this. And Mifune captures it perfectly. Better, in fact, than the older actor who's playing the rival general, who does a fine job. But Mifune does a masterful job of acting in this film. This is the transformation point for Mifune. He was born in 1920. This was 58, so he was about 38 years of age. He was just reaching the fullness of manly power. In Rashomon in 1950 and then in Seven Samurai, he played scoundrels. Tajomaru, the criminal, and Kikuchio, the wild creature in Rashomon and Seven Samurai, respectively. He was young, he was crazy, he was sometimes comical and sometimes terrifying, but he did not have any nobility or gravitas. Whereas here, he has to pull off this very hard job of seeming a shapeshifter. He has to behave like a bandit sometimes. He has to assume the nobility of a general other times. But also he has to see where he is on the screen to these other characters. Wherever he's not on screen, all sorts of more natural things happen, more comical things. Whenever he's there, everything becomes more serious, more tense, more dangerous. To show, as you suggested, the power that he brings to everything. He is in the fullness of his strength now, but he also has acquired experience and with it something that other characters don't have, whatever their age, prudence, which can only be seen as a tension, as a danger that he has to deal with and figure out on the spot. You don't know what the consequences will be, you have to try your best, but you have to act with a view to those consequences which are not yet reality. That is a tension, that is the danger of impending future and whether you can make anything of it. And for an actor to convey that, such a confidence in himself and at the same time such awareness of the precariousness of his position is very difficult. Confidence points to peace, danger points to war. You have to reconcile them in yourself somehow and indeed that's what we sense in the presence of great men and that's what artists try to convey in artistic presentations of them. 
How could you be, as Addison says of Marlborough, an angel in the storm directing it? There's a sublime image. And of course, as we said, this is a far more comical presentation. All the high, extraordinary themes are somewhat concealed in the fun and the tension, the unpredictability of the story, the twists in the plot. But they are all there, and Mifune has to present this to make himself memorable and at the same time mysterious enough so that you can learn more from him and become aware of why the peasants might be in awe of him, but also in another way why the princess might come to respect him and learn from him. And indeed, the enemy general. How could that man respect him when he knows he's a winner? How could he not resent or even hate Toshiro Mifune when in a personal duel he lost and Mifune won and walked away without exacting the price of that victory, which is a life? How could somebody be so confident and so generous and take such a risk, turn his back and walk away when he could be murdered? You have to have indeed this sort of heroism, no longer the everyman John Wayne of stagecoach, but the demigod John Wayne of the searchers or of Liberty Valance. And indeed, Mifune seems to have patterned himself on John Wayne just as much as Kurosawa patterned himself on John Ford, because they had similar missions. They had to present an Esquilean, titanic vision of tragedy, of the foundation of justice through suffering, in its full nobility. Not a justice that is base, nor is a nobility that is unjust, but to put the two together somehow. Yeah, and think of it as the acting job he does. Here's what Mifune has to do. He has to find a way to be this character and let the audience know that he is this character, this man at the height of his powers in the world, not at the height of his physical speed, which the younger Mifune was, but a man at the height of his presence in the world. He has to let the audience know that, overawe the peasants and control them, and he has to be insufficiently memorable that he's not stopped by every soldier they meet. Mafuni has to play a character who we understand while we watch is this powerful man in every sense of the word powerful, even while he's convincing us that he's successfully persuading enemies that he's not worth a second look, even while he's persuading us that he's successfully keeping these troublesome peasants under his thumb. To do all three of those is an extraordinary job of acting. And he pulls it off so effortlessly, even in this movie, which is, as I said, often taken as a minor film. You never get the sense of him straining for effect. That's just perfect. His character always comes through. You mentioned the word prudence here, Titus, and maybe that's a way to wrap up the manliness, which is the parallel to the womanliness that the princess grows into. The general is already a fully formed man. We're not going to see the kind of development that the princess is going to go through. We are going to see a conversion of the rival general, but we're not going to see much development in Toshiro Mifune's character. But he has prudence, you said. And prudencia is the Latin word chosen to translate the Greek philosophical word phronesis. In Aristotelian virtue theory and ancient Greek ethics, phronesis is the ability to choose good means to enact whatever end you want. Efficiency, competence, the virtue of choosing the right means in order to get whatever end it is that you've desired, which means prudence, phronesis in this sense, is a fairly neutral virtue. You can have an efficient murderer. 
these people can have prudence in the philosophical sense of the virtue. They can choose the proper means to get whatever end it is that they want. There's a second of the intellectual virtues in Aristotle that parallels with it, wisdom. That's Sophia in Greek. And it's the virtue of choosing the right ends. The general on the conquering army has prudence. He has phronesis. He's won. He's been a leader in a great victory. No, a victory that was overdetermined. It's made clear in the movie the conquerors were much more powerful than the defeated. Still, he is a competent man, also at the peak of his manliness, and he looks at the princess and he looks at the general and he sees the general as himself, and he sees the princess as Sophia, as the right end to which prudence ought to follow. That's his conversion. He's found wisdom to go with his prudence. Toshiro Mifune has that already. He's pledged himself to protect the princess. In a way, Titus, without knowing whether he's right or not, at the beginning, she is not worthy of his dedication. He devotes himself to her because of his oaths, because of the samurai spirit, because of a lot of warrior-like Japanese traits where his personal honor wouldn't let him be otherwise. It's as she develops that he realizes his prudence, his phronesis, his choosing her as the end to achieve his goal was wise. It had Sophia in it. Now, remember, Aristotle defines justice as a virtue, too. And you speak a lot, Titus, of justice as you look at these films that we talk about from time to time. Justice in Aristotle's definition is the virtue of politics. It's what you have when you do politics well that you do not have when you do politics poorly. The princess at the end is a promise of justice because we've completed the political arc and she promises a way of doing politics well as opposed to the way of doing politics poorly that we've seen over and over again as they flee through the enemy's land. She is the promise of the possibility of justice, of politics done well as opposed to politics done poorly, the proper end chosen by wisdom for prudence to find the means to advance. She is the virtue character itself that allows these full-grown men to put their competence, their prudence, their phronesis to its proper use as a way of achieving good politics, which is to say, justice. Yes, and I think this is supposed to explain the way in which this teaching is presented, this combination of what is terrifying about being human, the historical setting of the age of chaos and war in Japan, and also what is promising about being human, the virtues, the powers of body and mind by which we hang together as persons and by which we can hang together as communities on the assumption that terrifying as the world may be, dangerous as being human is, we can put our powers together and put them to a good purpose in a good way. We can achieve some measure of success and happiness. We can achieve some measure of justice. Indeed, as the poetic teaching shows, some measure of wisdom. And that requires something that's not history. That requires comedy. Comedy is a name for a story with a happy end. But happy ends require some degree of wisdom. You always know which character to look for in a story by asking yourself, is there anybody in it that's like the director or the writer, the storyteller? That is to say, one who makes plans, one who matches means to ends, one who acts prudently. 
the plan in the movie is designed and executed by this general Makaberu Kurota, played by Toshiro Mifune. He can react in the moment when strange things happen, can go with events when he realizes that he's not going to be able to change this. He's just going to have to accept it and make the best of it. And indeed, setbacks constantly are represented as blessings. One day on the road, he just is forced to sell his horses to a samurai. Then it turns out it's a blessing he didn't have these horses anymore because they would have identified him to the occupying forces who are looking for him. So also with this decision to join the woodbearers to the fire festival. It turns out to be very risky, but it turns out that in risk there will be success. Indeed, even their capture is put to a good purpose. As the story moves on, he is not forced anymore to do everything by himself. He can leave certain things up to the princess. There is a gradual taking over of rule by her because she is now competent and she is indeed needed. This wise general is not enough by himself. And one reason for that would be that he's not a ruler. He is a ruler only with respect to war, which functions by necessity. You either do what you need to do to win or you lose. But there is rule also with respect to peace when we look for higher aspirations, for nobility that indeed reaches up to the divine. And that is where the princess is needed. If she can accept her situation, if she can rise up to her situation, and if she learns enough, quick enough, to deal with it. In the beginning, the noble council leads the general to try to outsmart the princess, to deceive her for her own good, to appeal to the fact that she is headstrong. But there we see that the princess is not stupid. She's not only headstrong, she knows that she's headstrong and therefore that others might try to use that part of her character. She's perhaps not in control of her temper, certainly not fully yet, but she's aware of it. She's aware of her problems. She is not simply conceited. She has an awareness of her weaknesses and therefore of what she needs. And this thing that in the beginning prevents her from being under the control or simply obedient Toshiro Mifune is also what makes her capable of using his help when she does need it. She has to be self-aware. She has to be not simply deluded. She has to have, that is to say, some degree of self-knowledge. Yeah, I'm slightly taken aback, Titus, by your reading of Rokurota, of the general, as the stand-in for Kurosawa. You know, in Shakespeare... Shakespeare, of course, is a mystery. He's always so far beyond us. But there's certain characters that we could reasonably say are possibly some kind of stand-in for the playwright. Festin in Twelfth Night. Um, the Fool in King Lear. These are always characters who are on the outside, have a kind of comic view of the world, combined with a tragic view of the world. They're characters who are capable of real meanness. I mean, the gulling of Malvolio in Twelfth Night is as cruel a scene as exists in a Shakespeare comedy. Like Kurosawa, of course, was fascinated by Shakespeare. And we see his identification with this kind of character in his setting of Dostoevsky's The Idiot, which I don't think is a successful movie, but it's interesting. And I don't think Kurosawa does identify himself with Rokurota. If anything, the characters that are closest to his tragic comic view of the world are the peasants who float along the tide and have the chance of being good in a good world, have the chance of being evil in an evil world. 
well, the peasants do not have any capacity for planning and executing, for recognizing things as they are and acting on that knowledge, whereas the general does. But you could say that they have to be put together in a way, since Kurosawa is not a ruler. In that sense, he's like the peasant, not like the general. But in another sense, you see that the general is capable of learning from the peasants and of sympathizing, therefore, with them and being in an ironic way like them. As I said in the original Japanese title, we have not only Hidden Fortress, which, as you said, is the princess, but we also have three scoundrels. And that possible unity of the incredibly effective and ruthlessly rational at times general and these bumbling, but in another sense natural and aware of the natural situation of man, scoundrels, that unity would correspond better to the poetic perspective. Just like in the case of King Lear, you cannot understand Shakespeare unless you understand also the king as part of him, since Shakespeare had to plot out his portrait of a perfect ruler. King Lear is the only king in Shakespeare who achieves the purpose of all kings in Shakespeare, that is to say, the unity of Britain. That's indeed of importance, because Shakespeare wrote sort of philosophical histories of England, like Kurosawa did, sort of philosophical histories of Japan. How could Japan be understood and at the same time loved or at least accepted even after the catastrophe of World War II? Well, there would have to be something good and something just possible for Japan. This princess and this general are the only example of a truly happy end. And we see this Titus in great artists. Their ability to use comedy to point us to deep truths because comedy itself is deep. This is Jane Austen telling the story of Emma, which is a romantic comedy. The book is dedicated to the Prince Regent. It's Jane Austen's account of England. And when Emma, the beautiful rich girl, pledges her troth with a successful farmer of the yeoman class, Jane Austen is telling us something about the history of England and where it's going and where it ought to go. I mean, she's written in the guise of a romantic, slightly comic novel, A Political History of England. We see this in Shakespeare, and we see it in Kurosawa, that the comedy itself can be a way of speaking the deep truths we wouldn't be as willing to hear, and maybe would not be revealed as fully in simple tragedy. Yes, indeed. We can develop a love of suffering of remembering suffering, failure, misery, of weeping for ourselves and for our fate. Tragedy can encourage that softness and the kind of cruelty that comes out of it if we come to believe that we deserve that fate or that others do. Comedy comes as a necessary corrective. Comedy, therefore, is the necessary improvement on history, which is more full of suffering and horrifying wars than it is of golden ages. Comedy is the golden age, so far as a philosophic poetry can offer it. And it's not something we can fully realize which is why you don't see an end as happy as Hidden Fortress is anywhere else. But that doesn't mean it's not true. It just means it doesn't happen or hasn't happened or it doesn't last. But it is a true human possibility and it's somehow implied in what we like about ourselves, what we hope for, what we at least glimpse, since we do not have the powers of Shakespeare or Kurosawa, but we at least glimpse this possibility of a just happiness, of blessedness. You know, G.K. Chesterton, who has so many memorable lines, has a line in which he said, all men are equal at only two moments. They are equally tragic when they turn and face as best they can their impending deaths. 
and they are perfectly equal at the moment of comedy when they chase their hat being blown by the wind down the street. This, I think, the great artists, including Kurosawa, saw. Comedy is one of the things that breaks open the great unities of humanity and the possibility then of rising up. When the princess says that the dead girl was 16 and she herself is 16, and what difference is there between their souls? She has had a revelation that comedy and tragedy equally can make. And in their combination, Kurosawa is aiming at something profound here about the shape of human life, the shape of the necessity that we live under government and authority, which always threatens to fall into evil and misuse and chaos. He's telling us something about what it's like to chase your hat down the street as the wind blows it away, which is, of course, those two peasants. They are comic. And he tells us something about tragedy, which is the moment we learned that Rokuruto's own sister has been killed in this war, and yet he's still here protecting the princess. It's all writ here in what, and one last time to remind our listeners, is often dismissed as a minor and somewhat weak Kurosawa film. Yeah, you could say that it's part of the greatness of great poets, of great philosophers, to allow mankind, especially the pretentious among us, to look down on comedy when they shouldn't, because they only make fools of themselves by not realizing greatness when it's put in their faces, because it's put in their faces in a not noble, not high-minded, not tragic, but in a comic fashion. But it is nevertheless greatness and part of the truth about being human, for all that it is often not recognized. There is a common contempt for comedy. Comic actors are never rewarded with Oscars in the way tragic actors are. That is also the prejudice of critics who like the self-importance of self-important things, of self-important cleverness, and ignore the graceful perfection of comedy because it seems unserious or silly. Comedy has a rule that you don't go around killing people. There's no murders in any Jane Austen novel that is issues to publish. There's some dying, at least, that's quite nasty in the Juvenilia. But she learned. And so also in this story about war and terrible stuff, nobody kills anybody. Even in a duel, even in an execution. There's a lot of fighting in a few scenes. There's no murder. That's a requirement for comedy. And that's how you get to the promised land of this neutral world where there's a better future. There are a lot of touches like that in the story that show how serious Kurosawa is about his genre choices, how calculated things are, how inspired, put another way. And therefore, if we just go over the common prejudice that if you're not boasting and self-important, then you can't have anything serious to say, then we can discover all this serious stuff just laid there for anybody to look at. Yeah, now when we reach Sanjuro, we're going to see death in comedy. Although Rokuruto does kill the soldiers as he escapes after his duel. Oh, before that, actually, you're right. He does kill those soldiers. In right, the, he runs down. Exception. Yeah. But, you know, that's within the genre of the samurai film, which is what this is set in. But you're right, in general, even though it's discussed, remember, it opens with the peasants complaining that they've been forced to bury corpses, people killed in the war. But generally, it pushes that off stage, And there's a usefulness of this. I learned this really from The Godfather. One of the things that makes The Godfather work so well is all of the evil that these gangsters do, the prostitution, preying on women for that, 
gun running, alcohol running. This is all pushed off stage to simplify the moral universe that we're being shown. And Kurosawa is doing a little of the same here. He's pushing off stage the violence necessary to you know, live in the world of medieval Japan so that we don't have to see the princess and her general as they grow in their relationship and rise up toward the just ending. We don't have to see them doing the things that rulers have to do. Yes, it is somewhat idealized in its departure from history, but that idealization is a necessity simply for revealing the truth there. As we learn from Aristotle, poetry is more philosophical than history because history is full of accidents. Sometimes the wrong thing happens, that is to say. It is the job of the artist to correct them. Exactly. And that's an enormous responsibility and it corresponds to a great ambition, but it's an ambition to reveal what makes us human and how we can be workable. Therefore, even in contemplating this catastrophe of Japan, there's a way forward, partly through understanding, partly through the pleasure of the story, and partly through, as you put it, the possible identification of the divine and the human in birth, and therefore the possibility of a good future. All of these things are necessary, they are organized in a delightful way. That's by itself the mark of greatness. For an artist to put what he needs to put into a story in the way that he needs to put it and not to add superfluous things or not to miss necessary things, that is perfection. And this movie comes very close. Well, it's been wonderful talking to you, Titus, about this, I think, neglected film. Yes, indeed. Likewise, it's a delight to know that we also love this movie and can talk about it. And perhaps for our next Corsa episode, we should talk about Sanjuro then? or high and low, or almost anything you would like to talk about. <laughs> Thanks so much for joining me again, sir. It was a lovely and enlightening conversation, and let's do this again soon. All right. Thank you again, Titus. Likewise. Goodbye.